Hello, this is Michael Melfi, and welcome to the Be Investable podcast, a series where I speak with innovative individuals who share their insights about what it means to be investable. Welcome to another episode of Be Investable. My name is Michael Melfi, and today I am enthusiastic to have Errol Arklick on with us. Welcome to the show. I appreciate you having on, and Errol, you have a very interesting and amazing background, and I'm looking forward to you sharing a little more with our listeners. You were the lead program director for the National Science Foundation, and you worked with Steve Blank to help put together some amazing curriculums and trainings for various scientists and engineers so they could take their technology out of the lab and into the marketplace. And more recently, you got an amazing company called M34 Capital, which I did a little research, and from my understanding, the 34 has to do with the velocity it takes to escape the Earth's gravity. Is that correct? <laughs> That's right. Awesome. You're you're very, very, very welcome. Well, I, I'd love to I'd like to stop and, and just hop right into this iCorp program that I've talked about and maybe some of our listeners have or haven't heard about. What is that program? Well, the Innovation Corps or iCorp program is a uh, really a suite of programs that was established uh, by the National Science Foundation in uh, 2011. And the goal of the the overarching goal of the of the activities were to support the translation of basic research in, in, into the effort of commercialization. So, in, in effect, increase the economic impact of NSF's basic research portfolio. Many, many in your audience will know the National Science Foundation or NSF as the uh, primary vehicle with which basic research gets supported in the United States in academic institutions. And so the idea was to try to set up a program to help increase the, the economic impact through commercialization. And is this program open to only people at a university? Is it open to everyone? Or how does the program work? Well, the, the program, the genesis of the program was to focus specifically on uh, students and graduate students and postdocs and professors in terms of taking their uh, previously supported NSF research out of the lab. But it has since grown to also include uh, research uh, from the wild, so to speak. And it's also moved over to uh, other agencies and departments. The Department of Defense has a program. The National Institutes of Health has a program. The Department of Energy has a similar program called LabCorp. And it is expanding to include uh, research and, and projects that don't have the lineage that, uh, from the academic institution per se, but it was started specifically to help those projects that had previously been supported by the National Science Foundation. So if, if someone wanted to get involved, where do they go or what universities are involved? Or how does someone go about finding out more about that? Well, there, there really are three parts of the program that, that need to be absorbed. There's the infrastructure part, which include nodes, and NSF I-Core nodes, and NSF I-Core sites. And those two organizations are infrastructural, and they are housed primarily at academic institutions. And then there are the teams, and the teams are the vehicle that go 
through the uh, go through the, the, the program and curriculum that uh, Steve developed. So a team who wants to get involved with this program really should make themselves aware of the resources in their uh, their geographic vicinity, either the node or the site. And uh, NSF has a, a, a really good uh, website that describes both of those infrastructural programs uh, really well. Awesome. And is, is there a particular criteria or certain things that someone has to go through in order to be able to be eligible for it? Well, the, the strength of the program is for those technology projects that are searching for a business model. And, and the the criteria really is, is expanding, and, and I want to encourage your listeners to go review the, the sites program and the notes program to gauge eligibility. But the key thing to note is that the program is most effective when the people who are undertaking the, the business model search still are in the mode of trying to identify customers and customer segments and value propositions. If the team and the company is already in execution mode, it's less it's less meaningful and, and honestly, it's the, the program doesn't support those types of projects. So there's, there's kind of a sweet spot. You have an idea, technology-enabled idea. You think that there's some value and uh, you want to pursue a process to understand and explore that value through the customer discovery uh, activity. So, Errol, thank you for that. I mean, I obviously, you and I have talked uh, before about how important that customer discovery step is and how it literally can be critically defining ultimately what the business has. And I'm sure there's listeners out there that are saying, oh man, now I'm already moving along or or, or most people already get into action. So what what do those people do? Can they stop the train and and go do this? Or what's your recommendation for people who are already past probably that ideal stage? Well, the program material is, uh, is open source sourced, and uh, Steve has been very generous with that material to make it available to uh, everybody so the the course activity is uh, it can be viewed online as I said open source and uh, the the teams that do have uh, eligibility are invited to participate in the program through one of the sites or one of the nodes and again uh, the, the best course of action there is to reach out to a one, one of those uh, facilities. And you keep speaking about, Steve, I, I'm obviously going to ask you about this next. You're talking about Steve Blank recognized and developing the customer development method and launched the Lean Startup Movement. Is I'd love to ask you, how did you start that relationship or how did you two come to connect? Well, Steve really is the, the father of the i curriculum and he had been developing uh, this curriculum both at Stanford and uh, Berkeley, but in the engineering schools and uh, the, the curriculum revolves around basically customer discovery and the business model canvas and lean experiments and the scientific method. And uh, my my exposure to him was primarily through his work on online. He would blog about the his his experience during those uh, during the 2011 time time frame while I was at NSF. And um, it just struck me that what he was working on, what he was developing was uh, in particular directly suitable for these uh, these young emerging teams, as I said, revolving around customer discovery and the startup. That's great. That's great. And and obviously, you guys have done a, a lot together in this in this area. Is there any one memory that, that really sticks out for the two of you working together or was kind of a high point? <laughs> oh, there's so many. Steve's a great collaborator. And uh, as I said, 
very generous with his time and with his uh, content. I think the the most probably the, the first time that we spoke on the phone was uh, was resonant, and uh, it was a, essentially a cold call. Hey Steve, you don't know me, but I've been following you, and uh, we're getting ready to start this program, and we want to use your content, and can you help us out? And we want to do this in 90 days. Oh, and by the way, we don't have any money, and oh, by the way, we don't have a place. Can you help? And, <laughs> and he was very uh, generous to, to give us to give us a go. He, his first response was, "Yes, sure. What's the National Science Foundation?" <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, and so I guess that that's a, a high point. Program's doing very well and has impacted a lot of, uh, I'll say, entrepreneurs, scientists, and engineers. I would ask, is there, if someone goes through the program, I don't want to obviously give away what it's all about, but is there a certain part that is the most, do you think is the most challenging part of this program? Well, you know, the, the entire effort really is a, an effort around discovery. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the things that are being discovered are with respect to your business model. And the people that are doing that discovery have been working on the science in these uh, startups or these would-be startups, sometimes for years. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it is hard to take, take an idea out to the market and have it be shot down by the market. And that is a, a common occurrence that, that takes place in the customer discovery effort, you find that what you thought was valuable is, is actually not valued in the market. And um, that that feedback can be can be difficult mm-hmm. uh, and, and hard to hard to accept, but even even more fundamental than that, hard to hear. Mm-hmm. Just you you don't you don't hear the feedback because you got your your bias blinders on. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more and you know I think the first time I was introduced to everything you guys were doing and just I it made total sense and while it was probably hey go out and ask people about what you're doing it seems so like okay that makes sense when it became time to actually do it there was almost this barrier this obstacle like I don't want to do that whether it be fear of rejection you know not wanting to hear that someone didn't like your idea it can be very challenging as the feedback I've gotten and that can be the most valuable thing it's where the most growth can occur it's where a pivot can occur it's where people are able to transform their businesses and their ideas into something that probably would have failed and now is going to be super successful and it's, it's really kind of magical when you think about it yeah I mean the, the way that we do think about it is that it is the scientific method applied to the unknowns of the market mm-hmm. and uh, the the challenge I mean that's easy it rolls off your tongue when you say it but the challenge is is that your subjects as it were in the activity are your potential customers mm-hmm. and you're basically out there exploring with them the validity of the of your of the value you think you're going to provide them and so crafting ways of exploring that is is a yeah, unique challenge. You have to develop hypotheses. You have to go out and test those hypotheses. You have to bring the data back. You have to synthesize it. You have to absorb it. And uh, it is a it's a very high noise environment when you're when you're in, in these exchanges. And the the feedback that you're getting from the potential customers or potential partners isn't always crystal clear. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes it's it's not in fact. And so you have to be able to um, develop a a filter, so to speak, to, to be able to get some signal out of the noise. And uh, that, that can be hard. But I mean, we're talking what, three, four, five interviews at the most? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you, you know the magic number. 
<laughs> is it takes about 20 before you even know how to do this. And it takes about 60 before you have enough to, uh, to get a, to see some common threads. Well, if, if, it's, and it's not uncommon, honestly, for, for a team to... I mean, we, we charged the teams with, when we were developing the, the program, to, to go out and do 100. Yeah. And it's not like that was a magic number. It was, you know, it, it, the point is, is you got you to gotta keep a pace. And uh, the what we find is that those those teams that, that hit that pace and can maintain that pace, they end up making a lot more progress than those that uh, don't. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. I, I mean, not not many, but you occasionally will meet a company or entrepreneurs who almost organically did this before they ever launched or went to market. They spent time, months, years doing that research and talking about it. They maybe didn't even know they were doing it formally, but before they ever rolled anything out, they interviewed those 100 plus people to get an idea of really what is that customer segment look like and what are they looking for? And it, it's I mean, literally so impactful. Totally. And that's part of the strength of having domain expertise on the team mm-hmm. is that you, you, you just naturally absorb the, the data and, you know, without even going through a formal process. But also I, I might add that domain expertise can also be a, a hindrance when something new changes in the, uh, in the industry or in the market and uh, the pundits, the pundancy keeps you from seeing the ground truth of what that change means to the world. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's, it really is a, an exploration. Uh, sometimes the uh, landscape is, is mapped out, but something's changed and now you've got to find out the new, the new path through that landscape. So I think it's best to go in with an open mind, but it's not also bad to have some research behind you. I totally agree. And, and you know, one question I ask, I don't know if you, if you have an answer for this or not, is, is there a common trader characteristic that companies who are successful that you see going through this process? What are, is there an attribute they have? I, I think the, the strongest attribute is just a, a fierce desire for ground truth, just a willingness to accept the, uh, the feedback and absorb it, synthesize it, and, and then change course as a result of what that feedback conveys. And those people people who have just a, a real intellectual honesty toward what the market is saying, they tend to be more successful. That seems intuitively obvious, but it, it goes, I think it's, it's worth saying. Okay. The ability to actively listen, it sounds like, it could, is a very important attribute to have for this. Yeah. I mean, you're you're an explorer and the, the quote subjects are people that are conveying to you things with body language, with you know their actions and what they say. And so people who have the ability to take those channel those those signals in and, and then you know turn them into actionable you know, actionable activities tend to do better perfect and so the business model canvas there's there's some people who live and die by it and and they talk a lot about it how does that fit in or what is how does that mix into the icor program well the, the business model canvas is a, a formal component of the icor program in that it is in effect, the laboratory notebook that the iCore program uses to help the teams pursue their the assessment of the value and the business model exploration. So the, the business model 
canvas is is, is an essential element, and the, the one that NSF uses is Alex Osterwalder's mm-hmm. canvas, and it's a really it's a fundamental component. So the, the way that I think about it is, as I said, it's a laboratory notebook. It's a it's a place where you can record your findings, and uh, it captures a significant portion of the elements of a business, mm-hmm. and so it's foundational to the iCore program. You know, it's interesting because you think about it, although most of us don't vet deals like this, if, if you say, hey, if you, do you know who your customer is, right, which comes from the customer discovery, and then you ask a few questions in line with the business model canvas, you can really determine where a company is and how likely they are, how ready they are for investment. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's something that I just says, as I've been, as I was preparing for this, I was really thinking through that. And if you're going to be looking to get investment or you are on the other side making investment, understanding where someone is in regards to those two tools can be a really good indicator, in my opinion, of their ability to succeed. The question for you I would have is, we I, I brought it up, but we didn't talk a ton about it. M34 Capital is the company you're the founder of, correct? Yes. And you want to share a little more with our, our listeners about what M34 Capital does and the type of deals they look at? Sure. We are a uh, private investment firm, and uh, we focus on uh, academic spin-outs, projects that have uh, basically students or postdocs that are uh, getting ready to, to launch their their technology into the, into the marketplace. And uh, this area of the innovation spectrum is an area that I've been working in literally my entire career and uh, it's something that I, I'm really fond of and uh, it is a part of the innovation spectrum where I think it's uh, sort of the highest use of our scientific and engineering minds where they've taken they're taking new ideas ideas that have been discovered in the lab and they are building products and services for the purpose of uh, satisfying or solving uh, human needs or, or opportunities and to me that is the definition of human progress and one that I'm proud to be part of with M34. And so we look for companies that have a new knowledge that are you know applying that new knowledge to products and services. Now is do you require that they go through the program and have the business model canvas completed? Oh no. We we look for projects that they have to have their five attributes of a uh, company that will that we explore when we're starting to explore whether or not there's a good fit between M34's business model and the the company's business model. And those, those five attributes are in no particular order. It's got to be an academic spin-out. That's what we like to do. It's what my, my team and I have experience with, and it's, and it's just fun. There has to be a uh, willingness to work with building out the, the management team. Uh, oftentimes, the, the technologists who are taking the technology out of the, uh, the lab requires some uh, support structure around them for uh, execution and fundraising, and uh, we like to help provide those uh, resources. They do have to be evidence-based. So even though we don't require an I-Core lineage per se, the experience of a customer discovery and the framework of the business model canvas is an important criteria for us. One of the first questions we ask is, okay, so show 
was structured business model canvas <laughs> to talk this way customer segments and value proposition. And we, we try to assess the, the level of, of evidence of basicness on the, on the first meeting. But they have to be, um, there has to be a re- reasonable expectation of valuation. Uh, we want to be, we help companies increase their value. And uh, we've seen a lot of companies that have been ruined in part because of the way they finance the company. And so we try to share our experience in that part of the in that part of the process. And um, and then finally, the, the companies have to be within striking distance of some milestone that demonstrably increases the value of the company. Unless we're going to be the first and last money into the company, mm-hmm. uh, we have to get to a point where the company has the uh, the ability to raise capital at a higher valuation than what we than what we paid to be to be part of it. So understanding where those milestones exist and whether or not a an M thirty four investment can reasonably get to that milestone is part of our assessment. And our typical investment is anywhere from seven hundred fifty thousand dollars to a million dollars. Uh, we like to be the first capital in. That's great. I have to ask only because I've seen it in a few times is anyone ever come to you that makes it to the meeting and they don't have their business model canvas done or can't answer those questions? Uh, I mean, we usually we 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 validate their the level of their exposure or experience in that in that prior to the, the meeting. It's a it's usually a phone call or, or a dialogue via email that uh, qualifies that. Got it. I just I have to ask it. I've just seen some recent meetings and and it, something similar to that came up and I'm like, how did you not take time to take care of that? <laughs> but they do it sometimes. Well, Errol, I really appreciate your time. As with every each and every one of my guests, I always end by asking them, when you hear the term be investable, what does that mean to you? So for M34, being investable means those five things that I've just described. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, if I had to put those into a, a couple of phrases, they, they have to be, companies have to be learning machines. They have to have kind of clean structures. You know, we don't want to come in and, you know, have to comb through a bunch of strange corporate activity that's taking place and and they have to go out and be going after real pain points mm-hmm. real real real, have have real customers and uh, being adjustable to us in 34 means intellectually honest clean structure validated validatable customers mm-hmm. awesome well i can't thank you enough for coming on i've enjoyed our conversations leading up to this and it was absolute absolute pleasure to get to speak with you on the show today michael thank you for saying that thank you for the invitation it was a pleasure to speak with you and to your audience thank you well there you have it the latest episode of the be investable podcast until next time stay investable in the meantime Check out our magazine by going to www.getinvestable.com forward slash magazine and subscribe for a free issue. Additionally, you can find more great content through our amazing media partners such as Cranes Business Detroit, Huffington Post, Michigan Business Network, Mishapreneur, Smart Hustle Magazine, and Startup Nation. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to talking with you soon.